You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. So um, I'll, I can I can read I can read first. Okay. 
Uh, it's not even that really big of a rub. I can actually, do I have to, do I need the microphone? Well, actually, I mean, can, can you, can you have me? You they probably don't need it. <laughs> okay. So the cook up isn't a new book. It's um. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's um. You know, it just came out. The paperback. I'm, I'm very fortunate and lucky that you know I had a lot of support from great people in Baltimore City um, and other places too, it's the New York Times and I said like, um, what people miss about the book, I think, um, actually maybe they don't. I think that, <laughs> so for me the book, key things of the book is the redemptive power of education, the redemptive power of art, and how easy it is for a regular, everyday person in a city like Baltimore to just be caught up in drug trade. A lot of times, you know, we got the media create these these false super predator, super predator images of, of these young wild people that just want to stop trouble and tear stuff down, but they never really focus on the problems that lead to that. You know, they, they never really take the time and talk about what they're doing. Um, and a lot of some of these communities suffer the way they do. So I wanted to bring some humanity to that side of the argument, but then I also wanted to, to tell my own personal story just to show that it's not really how you start, it's how you finish. This is the, um, the paperback version of this light, you know, if it's fit in your pocket, it's great for airplanes. You know, <laughs> you know, it's, you know this is it's more kid friendly, so you can give it to infants. And, <laughs> no, but you can't give it to kids. The cool thing about the cook-up, and my other book, The B-Side, is that I spoke at Harvard yesterday and a few sociology classes are using the B-Side, but at the same time, seventh graders in Baltimore City uh, Middle Schools, NAF and City Springs are using it as well. So it's creative enough and, and powerful enough to keep, to, keep, uh, to keep the interest of like, you know, the Ivy League cardigan monocle guys, but the kids running around East and West Baltimore can read it too, so I'm, I'm really proud of that. And I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read from the new introduction that I just wrote. Because if you got the old book, you have to get this one because then it's like a new, it's like a new piece to it. This is a new and improved version. It's also no typo. Well, I got got typos. I'm so upset. I saw my head. I said, "Yeah, what job? They pay you. They pay you to copyright. You know." The war on drugs is trash. It's just another way for the top 1% to benefit off of the pain that accompanies poverty. A bullet wound, a life sentence, or overdose for us is a paycheck for them, but there's hope. The new wave of white suburban rice crispy treat after school program drug addicts may bring the change we all need. I teach English at the University of Baltimore. We cover a range of topics dealing with culture and the way it's documented. And somehow drugs came up. There's an awful heroin epidemic sweeping, sweeping across our country. A small white woman with big eyeglasses said, bursting into tears. Our kids are quickly becoming addicted and dying. She removed her frames to wipe her face before saying that she never thought a suburb would be a drug-infested city. 
Maybe it's new to you after five. But if you black and poor, then her mother is maybe just running around. I showed them what East Baltimore was like in the 90s by telling them about yellow face curry with short cornrows. And I do like the curry, same thing to the clock every day. A lighter, a tablespoon, a hypothermic deal, a belt that double as a tourniquet, and a sack of dough when you swing it. Curry strangles cast with his belt until a few veins blush and pop. Then he flick, flick, flick the lighter until it makes, until a sturdy flame come under the tablespoon. His eyes flared as the fire made the spoon go orange. The liquid contents inside bubbled until it reached the right temperature, one that only he could eyeball. Then he dabbed the tip of the needle into the heated solution until it filled the syringe. The next stop was in that rose bruised calf vein where he sank the needle and pulled back the plunger into a little of his own blood flushed in. Then he pushed the turn that the glob of dope mixed blood back into the system as he loosened the belt and slipped into an easy dive. He floated away until I would know things spoke to, as the rest of us three teams would play basketball next to the bench in the middle. Curry didn't scare us because his presence was normal. Junkies, dope things, sales, shooters, bases, or whatever the new region calls them were normal. I've been a professional writer for three years now and away from the third game over a decade. It feels like eons. It feels like eons since I parked European cars smack dab in the middle of poverty, jumped out like a pop star, pop star clothes on, and received all the praise from the dealers, the ladies, the fans, and basically everybody but the cops. Today I walk those same blocks as an advocate, a person who pulls kids away from the drug game, not by demonizing their actions, but by exposing them to other options that kids like us don't normally get, and by telling the truth about selling drugs how the money doesn't match the risk, and it's a vicious trap and it's catching them, me, and the dudes that came before. Again, this isn't new. It's been like this forever. Back in the 70s, Nixon's war on drugs planted the seeds, which were fertilized by Reagan and Bush in the 80s, and then grew into a field of mass incarceration that was opposite and co-signed by Clinton's in the 90s. John Ehrlichman, Nixon's domestic policy chief, to a Harper magazine and Nixon's war on drugs was meant to target black people. Quote, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war, we knew we, knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war on black or again the public to associate blacks with heroin and it criminalized them both heavily. We could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, break their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them every night on the evening news, explained earlier. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. That plan worked well as we watched a number of African Americans being incarcerated so past whites to be released back into society as partial citizens. Partially because drug policies can easily make you unemployable, leaving you ineligible for financial aid, public housing, and welfare. You're basically like a slave, a captured human with partial rights. What do you do for money? How do you assimilate? This is America and everything costs something. Having nothing drives a person crazy, pushing them towards two realities that we use it and that we deal. I use art to explain these things, and admittedly, at times it's difficult. The drug game has changed. I'm a dinosaur, a house phone, a walking tombstone. First mentioned in, my, in the earlier version of this book, some of the guys that even came to my book launch are dead now. Gone. There's a shortage of us 30 somethings that barely crawled out of the 90s, being really one of the few years from that era with positive insight. And trying to be fine those harsh times 
to these new dealers with their dyed dreadlocks, painted on jeans and dreadlocks worse than the junkies they serve is more tougher than an MIT algorithm. I don't understand their language, their moves, the selfies they take with their weapons, or the point, or the point of their slinging. The money is even less than when I was active. But when the young kids do listen to me, I explain, I explain to them that in Baltimore City, 97% of the people going there probably die in poverty. And I understand that currently Bill is one of the few jobs that is always hiring. It's been like that in our inner cities and it will continue to be like that until those unfair drug policies are changed. And the government and big business profit off those same policies, so they aren't excited to change anything, which means it's up to us. We are responsible for getting guys like Yellow Face Carrot and helping needs and kicking the drugs out of our own communities because they won't. What my student, what my student didn't know is that the current white addiction is not a new wave. Many articles have been published on the rampant drug use in white communities and how it surpasses use in African American communities. Even though the media started, even though media stereotypes would lead you to believe the opposite, the wild card is held by the Percocet slender pharmaceutical companies who can't wait to have doctors prescribe the drug for any and everything from a slightly scratched pinky to a bad day. And I fully, and I fully understand that, that addiction because the pills had me too. Luckily, the prescriptions weren't half as easy to get as they were in the early 2000s. So many people in my communities are going purpose like crazy that doctors are finally being caught out for their role in creating an epidemic and forced to lessen the large amounts that they were shelling out. But is it too late? Percocets are like synthetic heroin, so if the doctor cancels the prescription, you can get the same spelling from the street pharmacist. That's exactly what the white people are doing. As a result, treatment centers are popping up everywhere. I hope this leads to us effectively addressing the issue of narcotics addiction. I welcome the depression when I think about yellow face carrying his medical addiction. White people and those in more privileged areas are starting to feel the same. And even though I never wish that pain on anybody, I'm glad that this problem is finally giving the attention that it needs. I hope books like this and others raise the awareness we need to change these issues. But the first step is acknowledging that the war on drugs is bullshit and the top one percent gains from that pain. Sorry for the time. I actually got to write it out loud before. And it was a typo. Let me know what y'all fixing me in here. Like, so, um, yeah, that's the cook up. Um, and then, you know, Lisa's going to read and talk about her book again. We'll have like a conversation with everybody. So, um, hi, y'all. So, this is my first role, y'all. You know, I'm sitting next to a seasoned vet. My book is, this is my first book that dropped on Tuesday. Uh, so, this is my first. Gerald, a quiet student who is easily overlooked, 
quickly brings to my attention. Miss P, what's good? You forgot to talk for the day, he gently says. I smile as, as his request affirms that they are in fact watching. They are taking it in, and I just might be reaching them after all. You are so right, Gerald, I got you, I pleasantly reply, and I write a new thought for the day in the corner of the board as he diligently copies it into his notebook and grins. Look at what you've been through and what you've survived. You are a walking, talking miracle. You are so much more than you've been told, Miss Pig. The first week is totally about getting to know the dramatic range of characters who I'm working with all day, every day, all year. For some odd reason, the alpha males have decided to sit in the front row right up in my face. The back row is normally where the cool kids sit, reserved for shit-talking and social lounge parlaying. Like the kitchen, it's the space most comfortable in the cut where real conversation and saloon talk takes place. Later, I would figure out that one of the leaders of this alpha male crew had a crush on me, hence the front row spotlight positioning. They call themselves the bosses. I call them the bosses of stink. Not because they smell, but because they have stink attitudes always getting on my nerves. They're fly boys, as fly as one can be in jail, rocking fresh haircuts and spanking new sneakers as they damn sure wouldn't be caught dead in pumpkin seeds. <laughs> they think those jailhouse bobos are for herbs. The bosses get barbershop time on a regular basis and clearly have rank and power back in their housing areas. They walk like king with an air of confidence and subtle intimidation, getting a constant flow of salutations, fist bumps, and handshakes from guys passing by the class, like little hoodlum dons. <laughs> me, and my, me and my Gucci girl crew back in high school thought we were the shit too. Knowing the pecking order in this place is important. Who's the OG? Who's in his crew? Who's the doja? Who's the pop-off dummy? Knowing who's blood, who's crip, and who's food is critical information to stay a step ahead of potential tensions and explosions that might rise. But most important is having peripheral vision, which is essential for classroom management. The bosses sit in the same seats every day, immediately declaring their territory. They claim the front row seats on the left-hand side next to the door and the window that looks out onto the hallway. Guys who are on their team, which includes their pop-off dummies, sit close behind them. The neutrals are guys who say to themselves, don't claim a gang or a team, and sit in the far back row center of the room. Those desks are generally up for grabs since no one had a stronghold on that section. The Harlem crew has claimed four back row seats to the far right next to the filthy windows that face another of the jail's brick walls. Nothing to see except hardened pigeon shit, feathers, and dirt splattered on the window slats. On the board, I write SWBAT. Students will be able to discuss the five evolutions of Malcolm X and compare and contrast his evolutions to their own. Then I write, do now. Write a five-paragraph essay reflecting upon and answering the following questions. What is your government name, the name your mother gave you? Who were you in the street, your nickname and why? Who are you in jail, your jailhouse nickname and why? And finally, look into the future. What type of man do you see yourself evolving into? I asked the group, who knows the five names of Malcolm X? What you talking about, Miss P? Five names? He was just Malcolm X. Taekwon, one of my more attentive but hyperactive students, blurts out, I respond. He had a government name, the name he was born with. 
Then he had a name that he was called when he was running the streets hustling, and Malcolm X was a hustler? Taekwon interrupts. Yeah, nigga, he did time in prison, right, Miss P? Tyrone, the leader of the bosses, interjects, looking for approval. Watch that word, no niggas, I say. But yes, he sure did do time in prison, and when he was in prison, he was called something else, and he later changed his name to Malcolm X. Then, after his trip to Mecca, he would change it again to something else. So what was his first name? What was his government legal name? What did his mama name him? I asked, challenging them. Oh, shit, I should know this. Tyrone <laughs> says, snapping his fingers, trying desperately to remember. Spike Lee did a movie on him. Denzel played Malcolm and that nigga. I cock my head to the side, prompting Tyrone to correct himself. I mean, that brother did look like him too. <laughs> After a moment, he says, I don't know, Miss P. I can't call it. Tyrone gives up. I've held their suspense long enough, and they'll never guess it, so I tell him. He was born Malcolm Little, and I write the first name on the board. So, okay, when he was in the street hustling, getting paper, what was the street name he went by? I continued. Stunned to learn that Malcolm X had a dark past in the streets, Taekwon asked, He sold drugs for real? He did a little bit of everything burglary, pimping, number running, gambling, hustling. He was in the street, hard body, just like you. So what was his hustler name? I asked again. Looking at their bewildered faces and shrugging shoulders, I tried to give them a little help. Part of his name described the color of his hair, and the other part of his name was the city where he was from. Harlem, yelled Tyrone, confident that he's right. Harlem, hey, yelled Raheem and Marquis, the two Harlemites in the back of the class. Harlem got the most snitches, Shout out to Keith Quick from across the world. <laughs> <laughs> Raheem flags with his hand and sucks his teeth as he shoots back. Not as many as Brooklyn, I mean Snitchlin. I don't give a fuck about Snitchlin in Brooklyn because I ain't from bum ass Brooklyn. Shout out to responds with a trickster smile, knowing his comment will surely get a rise out of his buddy Tyrone, who's from Brooklyn. Yo, watch your mouth, son. Tyrone growls, falling right into Shatik's trap to stir up drama for any means necessary. <laughs> Makai, another one of the bosses who sits next to Tyrone, chuckles like a muppet. I have to nip this shit in the butt. All right, all right, every girl has snitches, so let's drop it and focus. Being called a snitch is a diss, a dangerous dishonor, like the mob, like the mob calling you a rat. I immediately re-engage Tyrone. Ty, you on the right track. Malcolm did eventually wind up hustling in Harlem, but he was not originally from Harlem. Good guess, though. Damn, Miss P, I'm stumped. I can't call it. Tyrone shakes his head at the feet. He was called Detroit Red for his reddish brown hair. I never guessed that, Miss Tyrone. Well, now you know, that's how you learn. I reassure him. True, true. <laughs> Tyrone's interest in the lesson seems to corral most of the class. He loves black history and makes sure to let me know. I like learning shit like this, he says, jotting down the answers on a sheet of paper. He nods his head and shoots me a friendly, slightly flirty smile. <laughs> Ty's skin is the color of black strap molasses, flawless, and he has porcelain white teeth that shine like brand new piano keys. <laughs> Shatik is, de is determined to be a disruption and pain in my ass today, hell-bent on being the bane of my existence. He's back out of his seat. Shatik, please take your seat, I politely ask. Miss P. I don't care about no Malcolm X. What'd he ever do for me? Fuck that nigga. 
this boy makes my blood rise. I want to slap the taste out of his mouth for disrespecting my hero. <laughs> One of the greatest, most courageous black leaders whom I consider a divine miracle for black people, our black shining prince. And this raggedy pipsqueak, this ignorant little chicken bone twerk, is throwing dirt on my sacred gladiator of black love and truth and respect and sacrifice, trying to awaken a screaming giant to remember our greatness. All hell to the north. Watch your mouth. Don't you dare disrespect Malcolm X like that. You know what? As a matter of fact, don't take a walk shot, teeth. I'm not dealing with you today. <laughs> with my long arm outstretched, I pointed to the door, gesturing for him to get out now. <clears throat> So if someone asked me why I'm in the hallway, I'm saying, Miss Pete told me I can take a walk, and it's going to be more on you than me, you heard? He quips through his slightly crooked, candy-corn-colored teeth. <laughs> He's not a bad-looking kid. He just needs to see a dentist and a wizard for a new attitude. <laughs> say what you got to say, Shati. Go take a walk. Thank you. My tone dismisses him. Your wish is my command, lady. He replies all snarky as he excitedly struts out of class during his infamous George Jefferson Peacock walk, which draws more snickering from, from Makai the Muppet. Shatik has his own very hype man in Makai, who laughs at everything Shatik says or does, which further prompts Shatik to cut up. Shatik has been locked up for over a year, so he knows all the CEOs and is able to move around a little more freely than some of the other kids. He has ingratiated himself with a few of the officers by being helpful back in the housing area. <clears throat> this combined with his jailhouse tenure and smart alecky personality has earned him a longer leash with some of the COs. Being caught in the hallway is not going to be a problem for Shati, who could slip into a buddy's class or chat up one of his favorite officers. He'll figure it out. It will take me a long minute for Shati to grow on me. Right now, he is a supreme pest, the adversary who plucks my nerves all day, every day. Taekwon brings the focus back. So Miss P, what was Malcolm's third name when he got knocked? He was so foul mouthed and mean that they called him Satan, I answered. Word, oh snap, nigga must have been a beast, several students blurts out, responses in a collision of shock. Watch that word, but yes, Malcolm was not to be messed with. How long was he locked up? Tyrone asked. He was sentenced to eight to 10 and served six. Damn, I ain't know Malcolm could have been like that, Tyrone said, leaning back in his seat, looking older than his youth. Daniel, aka Danny, a five foot nine, scrawny black and Puerto Rican kid with eyes shaped like the ancient Egyptian eye of Meru, Horus, has been sitting at his desk all morning with a furrowed brow and clenched teeth, carrying distress all over his gentle baby face. I am well aware that every day these kids are navigating a plethora of legal, emotional, and family issues, while also facing the pressures of jail life, dealing with layers of drama back in the housing area with officers and troublemaking peers. This cocktail of stress makes depression and rage commonplace. Um, I continue on about Malcolm X, so, so me and Danny had a little uh, altercation, uh, verbal altercation, um, and I put him out the classroom. He stands out in front of the classroom, but he's new to Rikers, so he doesn't know how to navigate. So he comes back into my class, I let him in, um, so we have like a little side of truth without me saying anything. 
um, is our way of me giving him a lifeline without him getting in trouble with the CL and um, letting back his class. So I'm just skipping um, to the last part. I continue on about Malcolm not skipping a beat. And what's so deep about this brother is that he dropped out of school in the eighth grade, was involved in every kind of criminal activity you can think of, got arrested, sent to prison, and was so mean and grimy that even other inmates called him Satan. But it was during his incarceration that his most profound transformation began. He didn't go to prison thinking he was going to evolve into a great man and a world leader who would touch the lives of millions of black people. He was just like you. But the creator had a different plan for him, just like the creator had the plan for each and one of you sitting right here. The room is focused, hanging on my word, and with the timing of an annoying gnat that flies in your glass of red water right before you take a sip, Shati pops his head back in the room and bounces over to a cop. Yo, nigga, give me that strawberry pop tart. I know you got some hungry as shit. Shati! I yell. Makai laughs while digging in his pocket, handing over the sugary pop tart to Shati as he runs out of the room, but not before turning and winking at me on his way out. I take an audible deep breath, unable to hide my irritation. Makai, a skilled instigator, takes opportunity to bring attention to the obvious. He be getting on your nerves, don't this <laughs> I refuse to dignify his baited question with response. Instead, I just roll my eyes at Makai, making him giggle even I know he wants to get me riled up, and the eye roll was enough to satisfy him for a moment. Underserved family public school. 
On my class, Boston, he's labeled as special education, having a learning disability. But while in my class, I observed that his reading and writing ability proves otherwise. And during math, when the math teacher pushes his cart into my class to teach, Taekwon is fully focused and does his work, finishing the algebra equations with pride. He, like many special education children, is given that label because of behavior rather than academic proficiency. If a child is deemed special needs, they are eligible, so they are eligible for social security benefits, and the amount of money a parent receives from social security is more than what they get from welfare for the child. So rarely do poor, uneducated parents object or investigate the label that erroneously stigmatizes their children. Therapists play a role as well. In some cases, if a therapist hypes up the diagnosis from an adjustment reaction disorder, a low-level, short-term diagnosis, to something more chronic, they, are, they, they get unlimited sessions with a long-term client and pharmaceuticals profit from ongoing prescriptions that can follow a kid well into his adult life and potentially create an unnecessary dependency. Just gonna pick the gay hand and then we this up. Um, okay. So um, Danny, the reason why he snapped at me because he was supposed to get bailed out um, and he was arrested for a crime he didn't do and his bail was late so he was just frustrated and so he took it out on me. So we we made a truce, and I gave him a book, um, and he started writing proficiently. And so we had come full circle in that moment. So the, so that, um, okay, so he says, thank you, miss, this is Danny, thank you, miss, today's my last day here. I'm going home tomorrow. I'm not supposed to be here. That's why I was so upset earlier. I apologize for my behavior. Apology accepted, and congratulations, I exclaimed with excitement. Go home and stay home, Danny. You have a book to write, and I want to read it. I want to walk in the Barnes and Nobles one day and see the life of times of Danny Guns on the bestseller shelf. Danny laughs and blushes as I hand him a, a, a composition book. Here's a fresh new notebook to start writing your story in. You're a writer. Never forget that. Thank you. Thank you, miss. It was nice to meet you, he says, standing taller than when he first walked in. Just then, a CEO comes in calling Danny by his last name and says, let's go, Nelson, you're packing up, and give him a friendly pat on the back of his head like the coach would do a player done good. Taekwondo yells out to Danny, yo, scrap, don't forget. Danny reassures him, I got you, son, no doubt. He clicked his pumpkin seed three times and was really going home. <laughs> Danny Dunn and I came full circle all the day. I reached him and planted a seed I pray will take root and grow. As I inhale a deep breath of accomplishment and relish in the moment of the joy of teaching, my nemesis pops his head back into, into the room. Miss P, wait, wait, don't pull me out. I'm going to do work, really. I ain't going to act up. I'm going to learn, Miss P. No, Shati, I was born at night, not last night. I know a spindle when I hear one. <laughs> Tyrone chimes in. Yo, Miss P, you mad funny. Then he turns to Shati to say, got to respect the black Nubian queen, son. Tyrone snatched a smile for me with that one. They tag teaming me, hitting me with the cultural reference, my weak spot, wearing me down. Taking a cue from Tyrone, Shati adds, I apologize, my black queen, and he bows, gesturing as if he's rolling out a red carpet for me to walk on. 
Want me to dust off your crown? I fall for the spindle. Shati, if I have to speak to you one time, not at all, Miss P, I promise. As he does another over-exaggerated bow, then he asks, Miss P, what Shati? You forgot to tuck one of your little knickknacks in the back of your dusty crown. Shati, get out! <laughs>
you know, kids today have are diagnosed with so many, um, you know, ADD, ADHD, you know, personality disorders. And, you know, back in the day, in the day when I was in school, you know, you kind of held that like close to your heart. You didn't talk about it. Now they they trade their diagnosis like baseball cards. Oh, I, I got personality disorder. Oh, I gotta have a teacher. <laughs> you know, and it's and and and, and it is um, some of it is you know uh, like legitimate um, psychological disorders, but a lot of it is I call it therapeutic pharmaceutical hustle. You know, where these kids are labeled because it kicks them in the matrix of this money-making business of prescription drugs and of having long-term clients instead of maybe this kid is acting out because what's going on in his family life? Maybe it's just circumstantial for a moment instead of he's got ADD. You understand? So that was something. never diagnosed a teacher that educated as a bad teacher. Right, right, right. Exactly. That was an example with Tyrone. I'm still getting used to the names because I know their name name, but I had to change names. So I want so to call his real name. I'm like, what did I change his name to the book? Tyrone, right. So he was diagnosed as, as being special education, special needs. So, so smart. Smart, smart, smart. But he had some, like, he had, he was mostly get hyperactive. And then I realized that part of his act out was he was in foster care. You know, he had a beautiful foster mother who loved him, but he was holding on to a pain from his mother, his biological mother, that came out in one of our workshops. So I said, this boy is just unpacking and dealing with pain that nobody is dealing with. He's not special needs. He just needs some counseling, some therapy, but he's not special education. That we don't need a pill. We don't need that. You know, he just needs somebody to help him unpack and deal with the trauma that, that has not been recognized that he hasn't had the opportunity to work through with anybody. So, um, you know, I, I saw a lot of that. Are you able to make recommendations for those students that you recognize that do not have um, issues and uh, not special needs but are behavior problems? You say that again, I'm not able to. Recommendations for students who? Recommendations for students who have behavioral problems. Any recommendations? What, what can the teacher do? So if you get a talented student who has a behavioral problem and you want to make sure they stay as far away from medicine as possible, what do you do? Oh, so okay, so so, so, that, so that that's that's really tricky because um now also working in the female facility with the adolescent girls and there was a, a school counselor who was my godmother and she was the clinical therapist on site. She was totally unorthodox. So she didn't go by the book, she didn't go by everything that they had in the DSM, you know. So she would help the kids, the girls, unpack what was going on in their lives. And that was helpful so that they were really excelling in the classroom. But again, when you're sabotaging yourself, she would help them. Now, in a lot of the public schools, they don't have counselors doing that. Counselors are not really, they don't have the time because they have, you know, a caseload of maybe 150. Anything effectively done, you know, with that kind of caseload. So my recommendation would be that, um, you know, there needs to be more of an uh, uh, investment in, you know, 
a school counselor, a school social worker, which again is tricky because you know there has to be a cultural reference. But if you don't have that cultural reference, if you don't have that cultural foundation, it's easy for you know um, people who, who mean well or do well can wind up um, um, just exasperating a lot of the woundology. You know, they get caught up in the womb, they get caught up in the story, and they let the kids kind of wallow in the womb because it makes them feel good. I've seen a lot of that. So, it, you know, it, 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 takes, it takes a special kind of unorthodox um, counselor and therapist to, to, to deal with that, someone who's not just ready to, um, you know, push a prescription across the table because they got to turn over the numbers. That's a hard one. Um, question. So uh, you mentioned that um, from you know from your experience that the, uh, the young brothers you served essentially they um, embraced and they actually enjoyed you know learning about their history um, and culture you know while they were incarcerated. Um, I work with um, young brothers in Southwest Baltimore, and um, you know we we have some of the same discussions. And essentially, you know um, they learn a lot, but you know, they don't always get that excitement um, offhand. So I was wondering, you know, maybe what what do you take or why do you feel that for those specific youth that you did serve that were incarcerated, what, um, what really made them appreciate it and, and, you know, get their attention? So, you know, if, if dudes were joking, it's like, they're chill, it's like, you know what I'm saying? What, what, what gauge them to um, appreciate that, that portion of that? Um, I, I think part of it is because I bring my passion to it because I have an undying love for my people and I understand the, I, I know who we are I know we, who we've been duped into believing we are so you know I start I, I go back and so I, I kind of think that radical passion and you know that, that, that realness um, they sense that you know and and I'm unwavering it's, it's, it's just it's, it's who I am you know I, I'm always there's always stuff on my board, you know, that you know is, is giving them images of their ancient culture, of their revolutionary culture, you know, not their slave culture. Not that that's not important, but I don't start there because they don't want to. So they're not ready to hear that yet, right? Because that's all that they've been given. So I go before, and then I go kind of around, and then. So I think it's um, my passion, my excitement gets them excited because you know I believe that black men and black women are gods and goddesses of the earth. The first people that created, you know, civilization on this planet. So by starting at that point and knowing who we are, I'm like, y'all playing, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you know y'all playing. And why are you playing? You know. So I, I think that the passion that go, oh, she's talking about real shit. Mm -hmm. So that's how you put it in context too, and that's something that's always changes. Like a lot of times we try to mentor people and teach people, but we're not doing a good enough job at explaining to them why they need to know certain things. Why do I need to know about this person's history? Why do I need this math skill? Why do I need these things? How are these things going to benefit me? Because when I was thinking about young people, when I was when I was thinking about people that finished high school, when I was in middle school, I used to send my brother send like dudes that was like 35 years old and 40 years old to the store to go get sandwiches and let them keep the change. So it's like, yo, this person proud of his high school and now he's going to get sandwiches for a teenager. You know what I mean? So it's like it's not being, you got to put it in context and everything involved. So it's like a constant. Uh, um, I noticed uh, from both of you uh, that you have stories to 
start with, you know, right about what you know. Uh, but I've also known that both of you also teach. Uh, and what this uh, young brother was saying here, um, at times it's difficult to reach the people we need to reach um, outside of the classroom. And with literacy rates going down, and, and as far as you guys writing, have you thought about other ways, or are you engaging in any other ways to, to reach the, the younger people with your specific story? It's one of my jobs. It's what I do for a living. We donated thousands of these books to schools, and we teach workshops in them everywhere. And, and I'm glad you said that, because this book, this book, right, like this book, like that book he's holding right there, they will play well in schools. I don't know what's wrong with North Avenue. I don't know what's wrong with them. Like, like, so, like some of the books and some of the things I've written, like students steal them. They steal them. They're not steal. No joke. They're not stealing the crucible. They're not stealing Titanic. But they know the cook up and they know the B side. And it's like they get really, really excited about um, just because it's 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 something that that really, really connects you. It's something about familiar information that piques interest in something. That it where it's never really there. Like when you're in school, you're not expecting anything to be familiar because you're given all of these experiences that don't remotely mirror anything close to, you know, whatever your social context is. Right? So it's like um, you know, we just, you know, we have a small team, like it's, you know, we don't we don't have, you know, we connected to maybe like um two organizations that help us, you know, um give away books and then also sometimes we raise money on our own. But I don't have a big infrastructure behind me. I don't have millions of dollars to do this. But if I had the money, I know all of, I know I know a lot of young people in this country, especially people who come from like places like East Baltimore, West Baltimore, Brooklyn, whatever, would be really great critical thinkers. But coming out of middle school, they'll be really, really thinking because they'll be able to exercise that much because they'll have the language that and, and that'll challenge them and they'll also see themselves in the work. But like again, I can't say nothing but some of these organizations want young people to fail. Like I can't because it's 2017. You know what I mean? And you still doing you still got people reading them. And I don't got nothing against the Scarlet Letter. But it's like you telling us to read the Scarlet Letter, I done paid for portions already. Like come on, like what are you talking about? Like it's not even these worlds don't even, you know what I mean? Sorry, but it's one of my jobs. So I've, I've been to like a lot of schools in the last two years. I don't even remember the number, but pretty much all of them, for the most part. Okay. And they accepted that one. I mean, the kids don't. Yeah, you, can, you can talk to any of the teachers in Baltimore City Public School, they'll tell you. Um, so. So um, I'm a counselor at DJS, and our kids are actually reading um, the cookbook. They just finished it, and they just finished reading um, the coldest books ever, and they read Midnight. But the minute they read the cookbook, it was like, oh, all right, we from Baltimore, like, well, they said it with a D, but you know. <laughs> but they were like, oh, okay, like this is real, like it was realistic to them. So to answer your question, and to answer your question. Um, how it relates to them is when you bring it back. Just like she said, as soon as she said, um, Malcolm X was locked up before, every, all the kids were like, oh, all right, like, so now you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm going through. So the minute you relate it to their lives, and it's not to kill a mockingbird um, or something like that, then they're able to actually be receptive and want to read or want to do more. Um, so I think even just talking to them about the fact that he's from Baltimore, they were like, oh, all right, well, what we got to read? How it go? Mm -hmm. um, and they like Sister Soldier books too. Um, but, you know, 
everybody in New York. But um, but I think once it relates to their lives, what they're going through, and where they can go, then that's how they're receptive to. <laughs> Can I jump in on the conversation? Yeah, and then it's probably after you. Because I'm you're a teacher? I'm retired, yeah. You're retired. I just want to go a little bit deeper into this, like maybe a little bit of a, because I, and I don't know if I'm understanding what you're trying to get at. Yeah. Okay, so I just want to unpack it a little bit with you, because I want to ask, ask, I know what surprised me when I was working with former incarcerated young people. I don't. I want to know if you came across this. I know you go to schools and sometimes you. Just a little bit. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Really, I thought I had. <laughs> okay. So, what surprised me, um, or shocked me, or like I took me aback when I was working with former incarcerated young people with the program that I had was. The the the, um, the literacy level. Mm -hmm. I was dealing with young people who were 19, 20, 21, and half the class could read enough to write their own poem. Like they weren't afraid and nervous about writing their own poetry. But our stuff was based on the was based on something they could look at for that reason. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I want to know what the literacy level was amongst some of the other that you come into. Like, how did you handle those young people who, when they saw uh, 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 write five, like when you when you said write five paragraphs, I was like, wow, I would have lost seventy percent of my my room right there, no matter who we were talking about. Because the literacy rate here amongst our young people on the street, not the ones who go to school, is is frightening. So the other thing I want to know, because I know all you brought, but I didn't know, did you, uh, so Lisa, I know Lisa as an artist. We came up as actresses and writers and poets back, back in the 90s together. And I know that you, you taught poetry there too, right? So this group of young people that you were teaching, were you with them all day teaching all these other, you were doing the poetry stuff? She's a, she's a, a, a genius writer and poet and performer. So what I'm also thinking is, is, is I'm wondering if your work within the poetry where you can do it in the rap and they, and they don't have to, you know, they need to express themselves in other ways. Do you think the relationship that you were building with them through that and through just being within a critical point, crisis point in your life also help support your work in the room. Because I think teachers are at a disadvantage because I, I realize when I need to get a whole classroom of, of kids to a point where they gotta write a poem and actually say it from the stage and some of them can't even read, that my best way in was really just getting to know them and be a part of their life and their problems and just like be there. So I'm just wondering if they were all, what were the other elements that supported you being successful in that moment? Because I do think the way you set up the lesson plan, like you just start about what's the five names. Like something that simple, like I think the way she set up the plan was really smart as well. We just went on what's the street name, but you go in on these really little teeny pieces sometimes, you can't overwhelm with all that information. So I want you to talk a little bit, both of you. Um, but I know you work with that population about what that process was and how that 
became this book. I'll talk a little bit more about the process too. The process about what brought you to that book, what made you write that book when you were going through that stuff. What made you think that it was interesting enough for other people to read? Why did you think it was important enough for folks to, to see? You know what I mean? There's a little bit of that. Sorry, I was long. <laughs> so, um, I've, I've been working uh, with incarcerated adolescents for next year will be 20 years. Now, I worked in different capacities. So, I started off as a teaching artist doing poetry workshops with the adolescents. So, I'll come in. I'll do 45 minute workshop and I'll go to another class. So I'd be there all day, but I'd be 45 minute spots in the different classrooms. Um, and one of the things that helped with getting them engaged with the low literacy students was, first thing I would tell them, this is not English, this is not grammar, I don't care about the spelling, if you can talk, you can write. So don't worry, I'm gonna figure it out. And even the ones who were struggling, and I would just be like, well, what's on your mind? Wait, you're not feeling this? You're not feeling this? Hey, I'm not feeling this shit. That's the first line of your poem. I'm not feeling this shit. When I gave them permission to not judge, they, they were right. And so I, and the, the, the spelling would be all over the place. But I would never let them know that. I'd be like, OK. And the spelling was crazy, right? But I would, I would be able to decipher what they were writing, and I would read it back to them, even though it was spelled wrong. And then when they heard it read back to them, they were like, oh, OK. And that would give them the encouragement to keep going, mm -hmm. even though they were not spelling it right. Mm -hmm. Right? So that was the, the kind of the, the hook to hook them in. That no matter what you got on your mind, it's valid. That's the choice. You don't want to be here? I don't want to be here. You hit on my fucking nerves? That's the first line of your poem. This thing hit on my fucking nerves. Okay, write that down. And they look at me here, write that down. Get on your fucking nerves? Right, that's the first line of your poem. And so, I think that gave them that trust to know that I wasn't grading them, I wasn't spelling their grammar, I wasn't judging what they wrote. I just wanted to open up the valve to get it open, and then later we can have a conversation about grammar. Way down the line, but it wasn't that time for that. Right now, I just want your voice to come through. I want you to feel confident that what you have to say has value, and that even though you may not be able to spell, you may not be able to read. And so that was another thing in the classroom. I had differentiated learning. So I had kids that low, 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 low literacy, almost no literacy. So I'd have to stand over their shoulder, and I'd have to read a lesson, I'd have to read it with them. But I always made them sound out the words. I was like, I'm not going to, I don't believe in promotional, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, promotional, yeah, social promotion. So. And it took time. And it, it got, no, teachers work harder than you do, no matter what you do. I don't care what you do. Teachers work harder than you do. Because I would have to stand over their shoulder and be like, okay, you're going to sound this word out. I'm not going to tell you the word, but you're going to sound it out. What's the first three letters? Okay, add the next three. And then I had them put it together. Even if it was just one word, I, I say that word again. And they say it, and then you go. Now you learn a new word. Let's keep reading. And little things just showing them that much attention. I had one boy, he was reading, he barely read by showing him that much attention. He looked up at me, he was like, damn, you got a good mom. <laughs> wow. Because I stood over him and I made him sound out the word and then sound out the next word and put the two words together. Now, teachers, do, a lot of teachers don't have that kind of time, you know, all day, every day to do that. But if you just take ten, five, ten minutes to do that with one kid or two kids, it'll make a difference. 
congratulations. It's your first book, your first amazing situation, very immersive, passionate, it's beautiful. Uh, what was your catalyst to start the writing of this book? What kind of made you say, I gotta put this down, I gotta write this, I gotta create this? And then what was that journey like writing your first book? Mm -hmm. it, 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 it was quite a journey. Um, so this book takes place in 2008 when I was a full-time school teacher. So I was working with kids all day, every day. Like I said, prior to that, I was the I was a teaching artist. So I was a re-entry specialist. So I was, you know, still working with the same population, but not in this capacity. So working in this capacity was, um, you know, as an artist, it was strangling my my creative you know, flow because I had to be at work at seven o'clock, it's a two hour commute to get to Rikers Island. So I had to leave at five, which means I had to get up at four, right? So, and then in the classroom all day with the same kids, because like regular schools, the bell rings, you go to different classes at Rikers Island, they sit in the same classroom and I teach all the subjects except for math, there's a teacher that comes in a little part, pushes in. So. It was a whole new, it was a culture shock for me, right? Coming in as, a, as an artist, you know, being a cool poetry lady. <laughs> now I'm with these jokers all day. And so all I could do, I was so drained when I came home, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually, you know, creatively. I, had, I, I couldn't create. You know, I used to write and do poetry and, you know, performance. So I always had enough energy left to, you know, do my own thing. I didn't have that because it was just sap. I mean, just right Island is, is like a vortex of just such an energy, you know, even if you're not creative, there's something that puts on a toxic landfill, literally, and just the energy of that oppressive environment. So when I came home, all I could do was download into my journal. So I just wrote in my journal. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking book when I'm with them because I'm, you know, I'm in the trenches. I'm, I'm you know, fighting fighter. I'm trying to teach them, I'm trying to reach them. I'm like, okay, find a new strategy. This is all new to me. I gotta teach social studies, I gotta teach grammar. I know how to write, but how to teach grammar. Now I gotta teach the mechanics. That's all like, oh shit, now I gotta relearn the mechanics to teach it to them. I know about it. You know what I mean? It's different to know it than to teach it, right? So I was totally overwhelmed. So when I came home, all I could do was just download into my journal because I had to release the valve, right? I had to release some of it out so I had more to give. Not thinking book at all. Two, that was in 2008. In 2011, because I keep my journals, because you know that's kind of how that's part of my creative process, my my unconscious creative process. Two years later, I look at one of my journals that I had, and I picked it up, and I just you know flipping through it, and I flipped to one of the pages that I'm writing about one of the boys, Shati. I'm like, oh my God, I remember Shati, and I just start laughing. I turn the page, and I turn the page. And I realized that my journal had chronicled my entire journey while I was at Rikers. And I was like, oh my God. I said, I have a book. And it was, and I didn't, and what really inspired me to write the book was that I wanted their voice, I wanted their, because they, they were so, for me, they were so human. They are human, they're adolescents. And I wanted their adolescence to be humanized because black and brown children, their, their, their natural adolescence is criminalized, right? Their prefrontal cortex is still developing. So I don't care if you're white, black, Asian, you know, uh, Latino. When you are going through adolescence, that is a natural period 
of temporary insanity. <laughs> All teenagers are temporarily unhinged and insane. That, that is a fact, because their prefrontal cortex is still developing, they're, you know, they're going through, you know, like the terrible twos, they're going through the terrible teens, right? But black and brown children are criminalized for natural adolescent development. And so I really, and so what was so, um, what really moved me about working with these kids is that I literally, I, I, I became very territorial with them. You know, I didn't want, you know, I didn't like anybody, anybody in my classroom. You know, when I left, I'm thinking, well, who's going to come and love them and protect them the way I protect them, the way I love them? I, I was very, like, mother bear with them, you know? So I wanted to communicate that these are our children and to emphasize children, children. We don't see them as children. We see them as thugs, as menace to society, as, you know, monsters, as whatever, you know, you know, uh, negative labels are being put on them. And I am booking case numbers, right, disposable. I saw children. These are my little progress. Yeah, they're bad, but I love them. They have value and they're human. So that's what made me want to humanize their story. And I mean, this could be like, for me, it could be like, you know, I, I don't know how old you were, Walker Van Cotter. Like, you know, just put the kids in the classroom. You know what I mean? But they were in jail. Okay. Since we have these two wonderful guests here, we have books out in the lobby. I mean, I'm in the lobby from Barnes and Nobles for sale. So we have some time for them to sign books. Thank you all for coming. Let's give them a great, great day. podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.